Miracles can grace our lives and serenity can take the place of despair. For eight years I've said, please God, don't let me have to go through this again with my son Michael. Please God, I've done it once with Mark. Don't let me have to do this. I've gone to meetings and said, I don't want to do this. I want this removed. I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to do it. And you know what? There's one woman that came up to me afterwards and lectured me or gave me any advice. They just hugged me and said, I know, I know. They listened. They didn't try to talk me out of my feelings. They just listened to me and they held me. And that is how I become willing. I become willing by the power of their example. I listen and I watch. Who is that woman? Who is that woman that I want to be? I have a friend that always says, I want revenge. I want revenge. And I say to her, you know, living well is the best revenge. Living well is the best revenge. If you will live well and get happy, you won't want revenge anymore. You will want for other people what you have found yourself. And that is the truth. I said to Debbie the other day, we were talking about people who force us into seven steps. They're like, my father-in-law, when he loaded, when he was to raise horse, uh, horses, he used to say horses were the dumbest animals in the world. The only reason they were alive is because of horse flies. If horse flies didn't bite them, they'd never move on and eat. They'd fall down and starve to death. There are people in my life who are horse flies. You know, but they, they, they constantly make me willing to take a look, to have God remove these defects of character. <clears throat> All right, that's it for me in the sixth. So let's take a 15-minute break, and then I'll end real soon here. I believe uh, that alcoholism humiliated me, but I believe that this program of Al-Anon has really taught me true humility. The book says when we speak about humility, we speak about self-acceptance. And I mentioned to you before that when I sit before the God of my understanding, I do so as I would with an intimate, and I say, God, you know me better than anyone else. You know, you know how difficult it is for me to end things. I need help with this. You know how difficult it is one more time for me to face this with one of my with one of my loved ones. I need courage. Please remove the fear. That's all I can ask. And often the prayer that I say, and I say this most of the times when I have missing children, is You are the general and I am the foot soldier. You are the general and I am the foot soldier. I am not in charge of the campaign you are. My children haven't had a father in 12 years, and I happen to be one of those old-fashioned people that believe kids need a mother and a father. However, I do the best that I can and recognize that there's only so much that I can do. And the rest I just place before God and ask God to remove my defects of character so that I can become the best parent that I can be under the situation. Not so long ago, I took my own students on a retreat out to the place where I went to college, this Catholic college on the west side of town. And as I sat in that chapel one more time, it brought me back to a day in college when I used to sit in front of that, sit in front of this large crucifix that hangs in that chapel, aged 18, 19, 20, and 21, and I used to pray in front of that, that, that crucifix for humility. I only mention this because it's. I guess it was important. When I was in college, I was when I was a sophomore, I was president of my sophomore class. When I was junior, I was president of my junior class. When I was a senior, I was president of the student government. And I knew that it was important for me not to let that go to my head. <clears throat> and so I used to spend a lot of time in in chapel saying, "God, you know, teach me to be humble. Teach me to realize, you know, who I am, what my place is in this world." Now that's when I was young. I went back to this. I went, I went back to this chapel a few years ago with all these little seniors, and I'm kneeling once more time in front of that crucifix, and I thought, well, <laughs> that was a prayer you certainly answered. <laughs> However, <clears throat> I used to teach swimming, and, and some parents would be very, very uh, impatient with the progress their kids were making. And I had a parent once pick up a child off the side of the pool when I was teaching and toss her in the deep end. <clears throat> of course, and what it did was terrify the child and set me back a month. And I have never found, you know, when I, and I know that some parents believe that's the way to teach your kids how to swim. Some of you may have been taught to swim that way. Ah, it's not my method. God has never taught me things that way. God has never removed defects of character from me in painful ways like that. It has almost always been gently. It has almost always been in a gentle manner. And the other thing is, not all my defects of character have been removed. Some of them have been removed for a short time. I'm not a brave person. But there have been times in my life where just for one minute I need to be courageous. And God has supplied me with that courage. 
The next day I'm a coward, but that's all right. For one moment, God has removed fear from me, and I've been able to do something that on my own I never would have been able to do. <clears throat> there was a time at the end of my marriage, um, well, it was a time about a year and a half before Rick died when I knew he had to go. And it wasn't about him anymore, it was about me. It was because I knew that I could not, I could not be a parent and feel good about myself and allow my children to be raised in an atmosphere of fear and tension. And despite the allotine that the older ones were going to, my children were afraid and things were tense. And I had to ask him to leave. And he said, I'll go to AA. I'll, I'll do anything. I'll, and I said, you know, it's really not about you. It's about me. I can no longer raise my kids this way and feel good about myself as a mother. It's got nothing to do with you. It has to do with me now. And I was absolutely unshakable. And there would have been times before when I'd say, I'm going to leave. Ah, you're going to leave. And he'd always say, this is my family's home. Where am I going? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Foiled again. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, he didn't leave. But, but, but what he did was that he did go to AA. And I never really meant for that to happen. But things did begin to change. Things began to change as God continued to remove fear out of my life. And I said to Beverly, you know, when I got into Al-Anon pretty quickly, all of a sudden the entire power structure in our house changed dramatically very quickly. And I didn't, you know, I didn't mean for it to happen, but all of a sudden, as I kept doing what you told me to do, I just, the fear began to be removed. And I began to make choices and talk differently and act differently. The situation was the same and yet everything was different because of this program. Because of this program. <clears throat> I believe sometimes some defects and some fear is kept in place for a reason. <clears throat> that's just what I think. People say, well, you're just afraid to get married again. Well, maybe that's a, not a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's in place for a reason right now, you know? I'm not arguing with that. I made a list of people that I had harmed. First I thought, well, what's this? Who, who have I harmed? And yet our literature says we are so focused on others that we miss the fact that our own behavior has not always been so wonderful. And so I had to be willing to take a look at that. I had to be willing to go back into my fourth step and take a look at the damage that I had done. I remember once going to a meeting early on and a woman was sitting at this table. It's a big meeting. We used to break up into little tables. And this woman, this young woman sitting next to me said, you know, my father was a drunk and we all knew he was drunk and sick and we just didn't pay much attention to him. But my mother... She was a nightmare. She's the one I resent. Why would she ever look in, why would she ever allow us to continue to live in that situation? Well, now what I really didn't realize then, but I do now, is because she was sick too. She was sick too. I understand that one today. But I had to realize that despite my motives and my best interests, my children had been harmed by this disease because this disease happened to all of us. It happened to all of us. When alcoholism came to our house, it did not stop with my husband. We were all taken up in it. It was just like a wave, and, and we were all affected by it and still are. So despite my good motives, I had been emotionally absent to my kids. I was never really there. I was always in the past nursing old wounds or in the future worried about what was going to happen next. I used to go up, sweep, constantly running the sweeper, smoking a million cigarettes, worrying about Social Security, oh, you know. <laughs> Mother Goose? I don't think so. I was on the phone with family members. <clears throat> I used to lie to my kids all the time about what was happening, all the time. I thought if I could just change their perception of what was going on, they'd have a happy childhood. <laughs> I don't know how I thought that one up. But I thought if I could just rework a few things, they would think that this was adventuresome. You know, it would be like an adventure and not miserable. And I always came up short there. I was in a meeting not so long ago, and this young, darling, blonde woman came in, and I've never seen her since, actually. But she came in, and she said, some of you are referring to your children. I'm married to an alcoholic, and I, I want a child, but I can't bring a child into this situation. It wouldn't be fair. And I did not say, but I wanted to say, oh, sure, you can. <laughs> you can bring a ton of kids into that situation. <laughs> But I didn't. You keep coming back. <clears throat> anyway, but you know, really, I mean, I have to look at that. I brought seven children into this, into this, into this. I mean, I don't beat myself up for it, but, but yet I have to be willing to make amends to children 
who have been damaged through, you know, through my defects of character, through a lot of things that I did that were absolutely rooted in fear. You know, my oldest boy, Mark, I mean, no no wonder he's such a nut. I mean, he, you know, everything he ever had was taken away from him. He'd earn some money, and then he'd do something, and his father would find him and take all of his money away from him. And I, and I allowed that to go on. I never, I never, I never stood up. I never said anything. I allowed this terrible double standard to go on and never, never did anything about it. You know, I went to see the movie Shine, and oh, everybody raved about thought it was great. It made me a nervous wreck. <laughs> made me a nervous wreck. It reminded me in a small way, a shadow of, of, of what I had lived with, of what I had lived with. We came out of that movie, and of course, one of my daughters said to me, because they were all home at Christmas except for the oldest, she said, that guy reminded me of Dad. I was just waiting for one of them to say it, just one of them. Why'd you let us live in that situation? And I, and I say what I say to them. I did the best I could. thought I was doing the right thing for you. I did what I did because I thought overall it was the best thing. Hold the family together, keep everybody together. thought you enjoyed living on the estate more than you would in, uh, you know, down on the east end by the river with the rats. <laughs> Where we would have been. So... Um, I have to be willing. I have to be willing to listen to those kids, however. I have to be willing to listen to their stories and to answer them honestly. Um, <clears throat> my kids have really been through, you know, they've been through, they've been through a lot. And I will not deny my children that. I will not deny them their grief about that. And I, it's one of the ways, I, when I have them on my list, it's one of the ways that I'm willing to make amends to them, is that I'm willing to acknowledge that, yes, indeed, their reality was the truth, that their experiences were true. I'm also, and another way I make amends to my kids, however, is to to stand up for what really I believe happened. Because sometimes my kids have, you know, they also have this sense of drama and they recreate scenes that never really occurred. Um, <laughs> don't all children do that? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I don't know. I mean, you know, some of them did better than others. I've got one who, who today is this wonderful scholar um, but she spent a lot of time hiding, and she never spoke. And things were going on around her, and she'd go into her bed, or she'd slip into a closet. And, um, and you know, and what I do for her today is I listen to her. I listen to what she has to say. It was, it was scary. It was really scary. And I have a son today, um, a, a great son, you know, actually. He, uh, you know, straight and narrow, great grades, terrific little football career. He, uh, son number five, always does the right thing. Last summer, I, he would like to go to West Point. His nomination, not an appointment. I hope to God he doesn't get in, but I would never tell him that. Um, <clears throat> at any rate, so I went downtown on a, on, a, on a Wednesday night in the summer to go to this West Point thing and, you know, where the, all these people are talking about, you know, West Point, what you need, need to do to get in and what things to fill out and blah, 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 blah. And then I had to leave him and drive up the hill to, you know, Mount Auburn to the rehab where I opened the door and now I don't have a room of, you know, hopeful cadets. Now I have a room of, you know, the rainbow children. And I, <laughs> you know, son number five, son number six, completely and totally different, you know? Now, you want to talk about a wardrobe nightmare. What would you wear on an evening like that? <laughs> Let's see. What can you wear that works with the West Point crowd and will go over with the rehab? Group? Anyway, so anyway, his son number five is mad. He's really mad. He's 18 years old, and his father died when he was six, and he's mad, and he thinks his father's an idiot. He thinks his father's an absolute idiot, and, and says it every chance he gets, and he's been saying it for years. He's an idiot. He's trying to get a scholarship to, I mean, he's, you know, West Point's one thing, but it, there's this other thing going on at the University of Montana, and uh, they say, write, a, write an essay if, you know, if you've ever saved someone's life, and he did save his little brother's life, actually, and write an essay if anybody in your family ever died from a disease. And I said, you know, Nick, your, sis, your aunts, dad's sisters would say, dad died of a disease. And he said, I didn't know being an idiot was a disease. Um, <clears throat> he also failed to sign his little social security thing, so when he turned 18 in January, they stopped his meager social security check, and I said, Nick, you know, you gotta write this thing. I mean, you know, because really, you get it till they graduate in June, and even though it is really small, you don't get a lot of social security when you don't work. But it's something. So he said, well, what do I do? And I said, we have to go to the social security office and sign this paper. He came home last week furious. 
I can't believe you would send me to a social security office. I will never, no matter what I do, I will never not take care of my family. I will never. He's so angry. He's so angry at his brother Michael. You won't write him. Who would put their mother through this twice? Who would put this mother, his mother through this twice? And last summer he punched the kid right in the face. I've never had that happen before in my house. All these boys, I've never had that. And I separated the one kid, the dreadlock king, and, you know, I straightened him all up. He went away. And, uh, of course, was the day I had to take this other kid to Luxembourg to the airport, got her to the airport, and then I was supposed to go to a meeting, and I came home. And I said to him, this is why alcoholism is a family disease. Because you don't drink and you don't use drugs, but look what it's doing to you. You're so filled with anger towards your father and towards your husband. I mean, towards your father and towards your brother. You just you just punch your brother in the face. Look what it's doing to you. You won't go to Al-Anon. You won't go to Alateen. You have nothing to do with counseling. Look what this disease does. You're filled with anger. And it's going to eat you alive. <clears throat> it's hard to watch that stuff, I'll tell you. It's hard to detach from that stuff and watch that stuff. But I am willing as I can be to make amends to my children and become willing, becoming willing to make amends is a process that takes time. I don't always see my part in things. I don't always see my part in things, but if I go back to my fourth step, it's usually there somehow. When I had to make amends to my husband, which I did shortly before he died, I had to be, I had to say, you know, <clears throat> one thing that I did to him was I continually allowed unacceptable behavior because I was afraid of confronting him. And I had to stop doing that. I had to simply stop doing that. I once went with somebody that was not faithful to me, and I always knew that he wasn't unfaithful, but I was afraid to look at it, you know, because I didn't want to have to, didn't want to have to look at it. And I had to make amends to that guy. Because I said to him what I really should have done was taken a baseball bat to your knees. It would have been more kind than letting it go. And he said, you really should have taken a baseball bat to my head. (laughs) When I allow unacceptable behavior, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm doing damage. I'm doing damage. I'm not being patient and kind and understanding. I'm doing damage. So, my family and friends, you know, being willing to make amends to them simply was one more time recovering. And that's what you told me, that the greatest amends I could make was to recover, to be present again in my life, to renew friendships that had fallen by the wayside. And, you know, I hear this back and forth. Put yourself on the list, don't put yourself on the list. Put yourself on the list, don't put yourself on the list. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, who cares? I mean, the fact of the matter is, when I work this program, I do end up making amends to myself. When I am good and kind and I become one more time on track, the kind of woman I believe that I have the potential for being, that is an immense to me. All the time today, I ask myself, do I want to do that to myself? Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And I think, do I want to do that to myself? Would this be a good, you know, would this be for fun and for free, or am I doing this out of a sense of guilt and trying to look good? Continually, I'm willing to make an amends to myself by asking those questions. Step nine says, by facing the harm we have done and finding the most suitable form of amends for the situation, we can clean up whatever mess we have created and leave the past in the past. And again, for my children, you told me to give them one healthy parent. I encouraged my kids to go to Alateen. That was helpful. Um, I try to parent my children um, the best I can. I always try to stay out of situations which lead, which would lead to resentment. I don't loan my kids money unless I can... No, unless I'm willing to give it to them. I don't want to put my kids in a situation where I'm going to resent them. Uh, the same thing I told you about rehab. I would never put a child in somewhere where I was going to have expectations attached to it because then I'll resent the child and I do not want that to interfere with the relationship of my children. One of my kids said to me, Mom, I'm sorry that I caused you. And I said, why do you talk that way? You've never caused me any trouble. You've never caused me any trouble. And remember this. When you are 50 years old and I am dead and you think to yourself, how could I have said that to my mother? Remember this. I didn't really pay any attention to it. Really. It goes in one ear and out the other. Don't worry about it. I do not. I try never to put myself in a situation with my children that's going to lead to a resentment. I believe in the importance of telling the truth as I know it. That is how I make an amends to my kids. I try to tell the truth, but I cannot take responsibility for my children's experience of what happened. I can only take you know, responsibility for my part in it and speak truly to them of it. I listen to my kids. 
you know, my sponsor says you are not your children's higher power, and if you try to become that higher power, they will never find a higher power on their own. My kids are right where they are supposed to be today, and I, I have to allow God to sort their lives out for them. I have to allow God to sort things out for them. That's why I don't give my kids advice. I only tell them what's worked for me. This crazy love struck one up in Oxford, Ohio. What do I do, Mom? What do I do? What, what would I do? Tell me. Give me some advice. I said, the only advice I can give you when it comes to men is watch what I do and do the opposite. <laughs> oh. You know, and when it comes to their father, you know, I... I Really, there is nothing that is clear to me as I get older that alcoholism is a disease. And I say this to this one angry son, number five. You know, if he could have done better, he would have done better. That's not an answer that kid's looking for. But it's the only truth I have to give him. This is a disease. This son of mine, this number six, that kid loves me. That's not the issue here. My husband adored me. That was never the issue. That was never never up for a question. To accept alcoholism as a disease is one of the amends that I I make. To accept it as a disease. These people in my life are sick and they are not bad, and I have to remind myself of that. They are sick and they are not bad. They are just sick. That's all. And so, you know, a change in attitude for me led to a change in my actions. A change in my attitude really began to, to, to lead to a change in my actions. You know, through that that eighth and ninth step, I really began to fall in love with myself again, and and with my husband too. And my expectations began to become altered and changed. And one of the things that I do um, as an amends, not even the twelve step work, as an amends. Whenever I'm asked, there's this halfway house in Cincinnati for men. Or most of them are just coming out of jail, and I'm asked to go over there and to speak. And my mother. Why are you going over there to speak? Don't you must look like Mary Poppins walking in there. <laughs> uh, so I go over there and it's a rough crowd. I mean it's a rough crowd. And I guess I do look like Mary Poppins. <laughs> and I sit and I talk and I tell my story and blah 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 blah. And I talk to these men as though I am talking to my husband. I speak to them as though I'm I, I'm sitting in a room full of ricks. And when they come up to me afterwards, and, and this one man, just the last time I was there, this one man came up to me, this big hulk of a guy, tears in his eyes, and he said, I really see how I've ruined the lives of my family. And I said to him, Bubba, you don't have the power to ruin the lives of your family. You just, you aren't that powerful. Because that's what I'd like to be able to say. That's what I'd like to be able to say. And that's how I continue to make amends to my husband who is no longer here, beyond the initial amends I made to him. My amends to my husband is I continue to recover. My amends to my husband is that I continue to parent our children and to stick to the truth of what really happened there and be willing to share with them my part in it. And I don't try to, you know, clean up his angle either, but I try to present him as he really was. He was a sick guy, but he loved his children. He loved his children. Our literature says we are the only ones who will truly know when we make these amends. We are the only ones that will truly know. Sometimes people say to me, gee, you know, gee, you really seem to be in good shape for your age and having all those kids. And the truth of the matter is, because I get up at the crack of dawn and I I start my day off with prayer and then a a lot of exercise. And if you're willing to do that, you know, you can stay, your heart stays in in pretty good shape. And I believe this is the same with the, with the steps. I mean, if I'm, I'm, I'm going to get out of this exactly what I put into it, and I will recover to the degree I believe that I'm willing to be open and be honest. And if I, I'm, and I'm never shortchanging anybody but me, ever. And if I want to skirt around my amends, I can do that. I can do that. But I don't like to do that anymore because Really, I'm a ruined woman. I, I just don't have the capacity I once did for lying. I just don't. I used to be the greatest liar. Oh, I was so good. I was so good. Step 10. 
continue to make, uh, continue to make, well, continue to take a daily inventory when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. A daily commitment to continue this healing, life-affirming process. That's what, that's what step 10 says. And I used to do that just by talking to people on the phone all the time about my day. And then I decided that I wanted a little more than that. So then I would talk to people and then I would really write that inventory down on a piece of paper because I like that better. And then I decided that would work better for me is just to make a list of, and this is still what I do today, I make a list of, I just, I used to write out the woman I want to be. I used to write it out in longhand. The woman I want to be. Then I would list everything in the day that, you know, that I was grateful for, that was there, that I liked, that, you know, those, those gifts the strengths that I had seen that day, and then underneath it I'd write, not the woman I want to be, and then I would list all those things that continue to get in my way. Uh, and then I've shortened it to, now I just write, the woman, not the woman. Uh, and that seems to work. But <clears throat> what is important for me in, in these daily inventories, and I don't do them at night anymore, that's another thing I've changed, I do them in the afternoon. Because I figured if they can make a fiscal year, July to July, really, why can't I do a daily inventory from 2 in the afternoon to 2 in the afternoon. Who says it's got to be from morning until night? Just as long as I'm covering a 24-hour period. Because really, at night, I'm, I'm like a, I mean, I'm just, I'm shy. But in the afternoon, I've got my wits about me. And I have really seen a big improvement in my 10th step because I've changed the time. Because I've changed the time. But the other thing that's important for me after I do the 10th step is, and, and almost always, because I am on the phone a lot, if you can imagine, um, I, I um, share it with somebody almost always. But more importantly than that, what I what I do when I'm done is I think. I don't say, "Oh, look what you did today." I think, "What would I rather have done?" I did this and it got my way and it didn't work. What would I rather have done? And that gives me an idea, see, of of something that I can change. Not, oh, I did that and it didn't work out, boo-hoo. I think, ah, oh, I did that, didn't work out, caused trouble, was dishonest. What would I rather have done? And then I think, and I think of that behavior. And it's more likely that I'll, I'll do that the next time it comes around. I don't know, that just how it happens for me. What would I rather have done? And, and what might I do the next time this thing comes up? It says this step must be taken with sincere self-honesty, but also with great compassion. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, I mean, I have a lot of, lot of close Al-Anon and AA friends uh, that, I, that I speak to a lot. Um, I have women I sponsor who are constantly, you know, it's amazing. They always seem to call with the very thing that I'm, that I'm running into. It just always is that way. And oftentimes, I mean, I think in my, in my relationship with, with women that I sponsor, it's so much, a, you know, it's really a give and a take thing. So much a give and a take thing. Um, <clears throat> Shared experience, strength, and hope uh, in order to in order to solve our common problems. Um, the help that I get through listening in sponsorship. You know, the help that I get from listening to other women on the phone. It's it's just uh, amazing to me. Um, step ten allows us to maintain ourselves in good working condition, free of unnecessary burdens. You know, uh, one thing that I found <clears throat> that. I had to negotiate my work. When Rick died, I had to go back to school to teach. And uh, and I had expired everything. I mean, expired certificates left and right. And I had to go to school at night and teach during the day. And what I was able to do, um, I believe, as a result of these steps, was to negotiate my work schedule so that it would be of optimum benefit to me. I put in a full day of teaching, but I take my planning period at the end of the day, and they have, they allow me to go home. I don't have to stay at school for my planning period. I go home, and it buys me an hour of quiet time by myself with no kids, um, where, where, which is when I do my meditation and my inventory, and it's helped tremendously. I believe it's absolutely important for me to promptly admit when I'm wrong, to continue to take those inventories on a daily basis, and when I'm wrong, promptly admit my son. Uh, I haven't even finished that story. Oh. <clears throat> my son, I sent away. January the 13th, I sent him away. And the other kids can write to him, but those letters have to come through me. And I didn't realize why until one of his friends at school said, hey, can I write a letter to Mike? This is one of his big drug buddies. Actually, he's the teenage drug czar of the neighborhood. <clears throat> and I said, sure, but it's got to come through me. And I read this kid's letter, and I, it, it scared me to death. It was filled with drugs and sex, filled with it. 
So I went back to this little kid, and I said, do you know that I have to, did you not understand that I have to read this letter before I can mail it on to him? And he said, yeah, that's okay, dude. Just told him what was going on. And I said, you know, this is a kid that's struggling to stay sober right now. I think you might want to re re rewrite this letter. But the letter scared me. It scared me to death. And I realized then why it's necessary to watch what's being sent to this child of mine. So, of course, darling little Julie, who's my second oldest child, who has this job that takes her to Italy, she loves, oh, she's a great, oh, you'd love this kid. She's great. Oh, I just love that kid. She writes this wonderful letter, and she mails it to me. And I'm not going to read her letter, because she knows the story, and she's always encouraging and supportive and loves her little brother. But I can't fit her card into the envelope. That You know, I can't, it's too big. So i got to take it out of her envelope, and i got to, you know, I just thought, what a pretty front card that is. I wonder what she wrote to him. That's not my business, not my business, not my business. Dear Michael, oh, I shouldn't read this kid's letter. That's really, that's really bad. Dear Michael, I love you, blah, 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 blah. It was the most beautiful letter I ever wrote. She wrote that I ever read, but I was wrong. I read her mail. I had to call her in Italy. I had to call her in Italy and make an amends. I said, Julie, I got the letter you wrote to Michael. I read it. I knew you'd read it. I said, why do you say that? I'm really getting good. Why would you say that? She said, Mama, I don't care that you read it. And I said, but I care. But I care. And then I had to write Michael and say, Michael, I'm sending you this letter that Julie wrote you. I read it. I didn't mean to read it, but something happened to me. <laughs> I was powerless. It was like this evil spirit. I, did I had to do that. I have no tolerance for that kind of deception anymore. Uh, and I do the same thing with my students. I say that to them all the time. They'll say, you, you cheated me out of this grade. You and I'll say, you know, you could be right. I need to look at that. That stuns those kids. It stuns those kids. I said to one of my students, she dates, she's 17 and she dates this 24-year-old. And, oh, my God, the other kids in the class are aghast that she would date somebody that old. Because for these kids, if you're 17 and you're dating a 24-year-old, you may as well be dating a 50-year-old man. I mean, they're like, what? Ah! So <clears throat> I was telling them that they should go see this particular movie because it would really work in with this stuff we're studying. And she says, poor little Ingrid who's dating with a 24-year-old, she said, well, I just, <laughs> movies are expensive, and I just don't have that kind of money. And I said, well, why don't you ask your boyfriend if you can use his Buckeye card? Well, I thought that was pretty funny. You know what a Buckeye card is? Well, you could get a Buckeye card that gives you um, in Ohio. Oh, of course, because Ohio's a state of Buckeyes. You get these Buckeyes. Of course, you wouldn't know. I thought, man, this is a slow group. But at any rate, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, you get Lone Star coupons, maybe. If you're 50 or older, I think if you're 55 or older, you get a Buckeye card. And you get into places for discount, you know? So I say to her, forget it. It's not even funny anymore. So I say to her, well, maybe your boyfriend can use his Buckeye card. <laughs> well, that's what the other kid said. <laughs> she sat at her desk and she went, and I said, Ingrid, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings. I was just showing off. And then it shut everybody up. And I wasn't saying it to shock them. I truly was. I was very, very sorry that I had hurt her feelings. And that's what I was doing. I was showing off. Do you know from then, for the next I don't know how many weeks, every time I would say to, kid, to a kid, would you please get back on your desk? He would say, I'm sorry. I was just showing off. Skip, skip. i got to skip all this stuff. Skip, skip. Um, I don't know. The tenth step for me. It's just, oh, my gosh. But I did it. That was kind of nice there. I, I, I said to them, just just on Friday, I said to them, I need to tell you, I'm in a bad mood, and it has nothing to do with you. I mean that you know that is how I, I I practice these things in my life, particularly with my students. And when I'm wrong, I I admit it, and kids respond to that. My students respond to that. It's just such an easier way to live. Such an easier way to live. Step eleven. You know, at first, I used to, I'm one of these people who used to always have all these prayers cut off and, and taped in front of my cabinets. And then I would just open the cabinets in the morning and read. read. <laughs> I thought that was an 11th step. I mean, I just read, 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 read all those prayers. I read all those prayers, close the cabinet. That was the end of my 11th step. <laughs> so, I didn't understand in the beginning, 
I thought I had a lot of religion, which I did. I had very little spirituality. I had a lot of religion, not much spirituality. It wasn't for a long time this 11th step, which is for me, of course, ooh, one of the most powerful steps that I'm finding in my life. Some of you know I get up at 25, say my little prayers, blah, 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 but then I go swimming. <clears throat> and I go swimming because it's quiet, and I go swimming because it's a wonderful way for me. There's something about water in me that I like. It's quiet, it's, it's restorative, it's restful, and it's peaceful for me. And there is an old sign, and it's right in the tiles of the side and it, of, the, of this old Y where I swim, and it says, do not swim alone. And I, when I go to breathe, you know, just when I'm coming on this one end, I, I look at that and I remember. Do not swim alone. Alcoholism led me into isolation, self-pity. Al-Anon's brought me back into community and into tremendous compassion and gratitude when I remember never to swim alone. For me, not starting out with and having prayer and meditation in my day is like having a wonderful meal with a cold. I can't taste it. I simply can't taste it. And that's the only that's the best way I have of describing it. I miss my day when I do not purposely carve out of my day time for prayer and meditation. Then I used to swim and read some prayers in the locker room. Then I used to swim and now I swim and I walk and I move that prayer, you know, into the morning as I said before. But what I've done, which is new, is when I come home from school, I unplug my phone and I sit very quietly for 30 minutes in meditation. And I try very hard just to sit there quietly and to listen. But first, I do that inventory. First, I do that inventory. And when I'm done with it, I sit for a good 30 minutes. Almost every day I'm able to do that. And it has absolutely changed a lot of things for me. You know, I don't bring this into meetings, but I do work. I have a woman friend who has done retreats for 25, 30 years, and she helps me with my prayer life. And I'm very serious about it. I mean, I don't screw around with it. I, I really am very serious about it uh, because for me, I believe, you know, the power of the 11th step, prayer and meditation, praying only for God's will and the power to carry that out. For me today, it's step 11, which really has become for me almost like the wheel the wheel of my the wheel of my ship, and I know that for me it's so very important to create quiet time and sacred time in my day. Um, I'm lucky that I happen to teach in a Catholic school, so I'm surrounded, and it's my job to do retreats. So I'm surrounded by prayer. I'm surrounded by retreats. I'm surrounded by the subject that I teach. I open my prayers with the Serenity Prayer, this new prayer that I'm saying of Saint Ignatius. I'm just my the whole school has all these posters. Love is not angry, you know. I, I mean, you'd think you were at an Al-Anon convention with these posters almost. I am surrounded by that during the course of my day, and that's where God has taken me after my husband was killed. I really believe in the importance of the fellowship and the promise not that everything will turn out the way that I wanted it to, but the promise that I'm never going to do any of this stuff alone. When I knew I had to send my son to Montana, when this woman had checked it out and she said, flip a coin, I chose this one particular place. And this friend of mine said to me, you know, didn't you go down to that church and sit in front of that statue? Didn't you tell me that was really helpful to you? And I said, yeah. She said, maybe you need to go back to that statue. So I put my son on a plane on January 13th. On January 11th, I drove downtown, called first, because this church isn't open a lot. It's in a pretty rough neighborhood. So I called and found out, you know, that it was open at noon on Saturday. And I went down there, and I plopped myself down in the back of this church again and lit another candle. I sat in front of this statue and I said to God, I'm not leaving here. I'm not leaving here until you give me something to hold on to. I've got two days left with this child. And I'm not leaving here until you give me something. And sometimes I get real snotty with that. <clears throat> but that's all right. And I knelt there. And I knelt there for so long. And I just had these tears streaming down my cheeks. You know what I thought? I thought this church has been here since 1850. How many mothers have knelt in this very spot that I'm kneeling in and have sent their sons off to the Civil War, to Spanish-American War, to World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam? How many mothers have knelt here with me shoulder to shoulder and sent their sons off and never really knew what would happen to them but made that leap of faith? And it led me to think of you and how you have always been with me step by step, never promising me that there was going to be this particular outcome, but always promising me that we were all in the hands of a loving and compassionate God. And knowing that, after that came to me, 
I got up and I went home and I knew everything was going to be okay. And on Sunday night, I took my son, who I, who had threatened to run away but didn't, and I took him to my mother, oh, who I only told 20 minutes before we arrived what was going on. <laughs> By God, my mother rose to the occasion. She met us at the door. She hugged him. She kissed him. She said, I love you. I love you. I'll pray for you. Now, she probably fell apart when I left and ripped her hair out and pounded on the floor. But man, for that minute, she was great. And I went out to my sister Nancy's. And she hugged him and kissed him and said, Michael, we love you. And I went to my brother, who has a wife who is dying of cancer. Now, nobody knows this but you, and don't repeat it. I have no way to send my kid to this place in Montana. I've spent every dime of insurance money on a rehab program that, for whatever reason, was not helpful. On Christmas Eve, my brother Tim, we have a gift exchange, you know. And, and I got him, and he got me. And he handed me a little envelope, and I thought, poor Tim, his wife is sick and dying of cancer. He doesn't have time to go out and get gifts. He probably just got me a little gift certificate. And I opened up this card, and it says, to a sister that I love. And inside he wrote, Kathy. Kathy and I, his wife's name is Kathy too. Kathy and I in this past year have made a list of things that we want to do. And one of the things that we want to do is make a bigger difference in the lives of your children. I know you won't take this money, but please do and save your son's life. And there was this check that covers six months of this kid in Montana. And I went to him, I said, Tim, I can't take this money. And he said, I know you can't, but you really have to. And then he said, you have no idea how really rich I am. <laughs> So, now nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. <clears throat> nobody has any clue how I'm doing this. So I go to my brother. Now we go to Tim's and Kathy to say goodbye. And I know my son may never not see her. He may never see her, his aunt again. She was just turned down for bone marrow transplant last week. He may never see her. And, you know, she hugged him as he was leaving. And she said, Michael, I hope the next time I see you, we're both in recovery. Yeah. So we left. <clears throat> and the next morning, I have all the kids stayed home from school. I stayed home from school. We packed up his bags. His brother, Nick, who can hardly stand him, he's so mad. I said, Mike, you don't have any gym shoes. And Nick, Nick, who all weekend kept saying, why is he getting all this stuff? Why is he getting all this stuff? It's like he's going away for camp. I can't understand this. He's done nothing but screw up for eight years. And, and it's like we're having going away gifts for him. I don't understand this. Blah, blah, blah. And his brother Nick says, here, take my shoes. He takes his shoes off his feet and gives them to his brother Michael. And we put that little kid on a plane on January the 13th and we sent him off. Now, the only way I could do that is because on that Saturday, as I had knelt and prayed for, prayed for the strength, it came through to me so clearly that the, all those things that I'm asked to do in my life, the power to carry that out so many times comes from you. Because you continue to walk with me every day, shoulder to shoulder, through this, through this recovery process from this terrible disease of alcoholism. He got out there, you know, and, and uh, he called me from Salt Lake City to tell me he was there. And then, I, then my sister Nancy calls me at 8.30 at night and said, well, did he get there? And I said, well, I guess he did. And she said, they didn't call you? And I thought, oh, my God, they didn't call me. Where have I sent this kid? <laughs> I forgot they didn't call me. So I called them. No answer. They called me back at 11.30 at night, and they said, we have him. He's safe. He's not very happy. <laughs> we cut his hair. <laughs> You cut his hair? They said, oh, yeah, he cut his hair. I said to him, I said, Mike, we can do this the hard way or we can do it the easy way. Oh, I got off the phone, wept all through the night. This crazy hair. Now I'm crying. <gasps> I got his hair. What am I saying? I don't know anything about these people. I got this word from this crazy alcoholic lady in California. What have I done? They're probably 
probably isn't even in a place. They probably just took my brother's money and they've chained to a mountain and they're beating him with a cow pot. <laughs> Next morning I get up, I'm still crying. I have to cut my swimming short to come home and sit in front of a candle and pray and pray and pray and pray for 30 minutes. I'm still in tears. I go downstairs. My son Nick says, what is the matter with you? I said, they got us there. He said, Mom, do you forget how awful this kid has been the last eight years of our lives? What? So he smoked a little marijuana. <laughs> Is that so bad? So when he drank, he became violent. So what? So he ran away. That's not so bad. Anyway, so that's where he is, and every day... You know, as I continue to get now, the last letter I get from him, he says, you know, I wish they'd hurry up and let me off this place so I can get to some AA meetings out here in Montana. My sponsor says, read those letters with a grain of salt. <laughs> They're cunning, powerful, and baffling. Anyway, so that's, you know, but I'll tell you, <clears throat> step 11, for no matter how weak or uncertain we may feel, tremendous power is available to us when we turn to the source of unlimited power. And finally, thank God, <clears throat> step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. Our book says that more commonly, though, we experience a gradual awakening of the spirit, a gentle, a gentle metamorphosis in the way we see ourselves and others, a slow and subtle unfolding of our inner beauty. The experience of God's love in my life has changed me forever. The experience of God's love in my life has changed me forever. When my kids lose something around the house, I usually say, where will I clean up? And I'll find it. Where will I clean it all up? And I'll find it. And that, for me, has been the experience of the 12th step. When I'm willing to, to do those 11 and to do them as they say to do them, this, you know, the result is, is that I really have this tremendous and profound experience of the love of God in my life. Um, <clears throat> I would not want to relive anything. I really wouldn't. But I know this, that, that the relationship today that I, because see, I think that's really, in the, the bottom line is that's what it's all about. The relationship that I have with the God of my understanding. The relationship that I have today with the God of my understanding, I believe, could only come as a result of what I, of my experiences. And that's what I believe. I was at the wise woman one day, and there's this really old woman. She's about, well, I should never say that. There's a woman who's older than I am. I think she's 80, which really isn't very old. But she does the aerobics or blah, 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 blah. And one day she said to me, I've been a widow for, you know, I've been a widow now for eight years. Why did I have to say it? I said, really, I've been a widow now for 11 years. Can you top that? And she said, you know, I, my, once you're a widow, everything changes. Uh, because really... You're not the most important person in the world to anybody anymore. I thought, what? <laughs> and then she went on and on about that. I mean, she said it very brightly. But she said, you're not the most important person in the world to anybody anymore. So I got my clothes on. <laughs> I got my swim bag, and I'm walking out of the Y. And it didn't take me very long this time. But by the time I hit the street, I thought, wait a minute. I'm the most important person in the world to God. That's who I'm the most important person in the world to. That's enough for me today. What's a, that's enough for me today. What gratitude that I live with because the experience of God's love in my life has changed me. Okay. Oh, Lordy, Lordy, Lordy. Carry the message. Ah, what can I say? I do that the best that I can when I'm asked to do it. Um, to pass things on, I pass it on no matter what that means. No matter if it means speaking, no matter, which incidentally for me is probably the least important, uh, the least important. Uh, going to meetings, chairing at meetings, cleaning up after meetings, uh, sponsoring other women, um, starting new meetings. We just two weeks ago started a new meeting on the book, you know, Alan on how it works. Um, all those things. Working with young people, which is, uh, you know, what I do. You know, people say, what do you teach? You know, I really do teach Al-Anon. Constantly I'm teaching this stuff in schools. Constantly I'm teaching the principles, getting it in, fitting it in, keep a big book in my uh, in my classroom, run these groups for kids that are from families of alcoholics, start the uh, classes off with the serenity prayer, constantly try to be a seed, constantly. Uh, I believe that I have an obligation to carry the truth. 
It says as we recover, uh, as we recover, as alcoholism and its effects no longer dominate our thoughts, we find that these spiritual principles apply not only to alcoholic situations, but to all aspects of our lives. Um, and I believe that's true in the way that I teach, in the way that I parent, in the way that I am a friend, in the way that I am a daughter. Um, who is this woman? You know, who is this woman that I want to be? Who is this woman that God invites me every day to be? Um, that is what that is what you have given back to me so beautifully. And the last story I'm going to tell. Sorry, I crammed those last six steps in in 45 minutes. But the last thing I'm going to tell is um, my. My sponsor and I went on a, on a, on a retreat. It had nothing to do with the program, actually, but it was a silent retreat. And in the midst of that retreat, we had to wash the feet of the person next to it. It was part of a Holy Thursday ritual. And it just happened that I was sitting next to my sponsor, and she was the one. She was the, she had the designated feet I was supposed to wash. And I can't tell you what that meant to me. The spiritual awakening that I had that Holy Thursday as I washed the feet of my sponsor. And it really just wasn't my sponsor's feet that I felt that I was washing. I felt that as I knelt down and did and, and did that ritual, that old thousand-year-old ritual, that I was washing the feet of each and every one of you who has been with me through these years and through this life of mine so patiently and so lovingly and so generously. After, we had, after that piece of the retreat was done, this very, very old priest came in and he told us the story of a Buddhist monastery in Nepal where they kept this beautiful old chalice that was made of jewels and just made of these precious, precious jewels. And they used it over the years for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And recently, not so recently, someone dropped it and, and it shattered. Well, the Buddhist monks were so upset. Well, they were as upset as Buddhist monks ever get. And, and, <laughs> We do. So they tried to you know, glue it back together. They tried everything and nothing would work. Finally, one of them said, let's take it to the artesian of the village. And so they gathered up the broken pieces and they took it to the artesian in the village. And he soldered that chalice back together with gold. So that held together by that gold, it was more precious than it had ever been. And when that old guy told that story, I thought of this program and these 12 steps and you and how when I came to you I was shattered and broken into pieces and how through your love through your hope through your experience and through your strength you've soldered me back together so that I am more precious today than I have ever been before and for that I am truly grateful thank you for your patience today Thank you.